If you will, join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given us this opportunity to come into your house today. Lord, we have worshipped you in song. Now we turn to worship you with the proclamation of your word. Lord, I ask that my words be your words. Also ask, Lord, if I should stray from the message that you would have me bring, ask that those words just be completely forgotten. Lord, I ask that you open our ears so that we may hear. Open our hands so that we may receive your goodness. Above all, Lord, give us the strength that we may walk your narrow way. It is in your name we pray. Amen. So the 4th of July is coming up. I'm hoping most of you get a day off. If not, I'm sorry. I'm going to take the day off because our office is closed. But you can still reach me by cell phone. I just won't be right there. Uh, but the 4th of July is an American holiday. Uh, as I was contemplating a sermon topic today, I thought, you know, me and my wife were talking. Was a, what about make America great again? Okay, so that's the title of my sermon. But this is an interesting statement. Uh, for many of us uh, in, in this part of the world, we're Republicans. It, it actually propelled our current president into office. Make America great again. Sounds simple. It's like we know we are heading in the wrong direction, and we know in the past that we have been a little bit closer to where God would have us be as a country. So how do we get back there? Let's make it great again. But this same phrase also uh, angers people. It may not anger you. I was reading an article the other day where a person wearing one of these hats that said, Make America Great Again, uh, was kicked out of a restaurant. Got caught on Fox News because that, the restaurant owner fired the manager who, who removed the customer for wearing this hat. Because in their image, uh, this one slogan represented misogyny, homophobia, xenophobia. You name a bunch of other things and you throw it onto that slogan, and that's what it appeared to them. All what was wrong about this country, they put in that slogan. So how is it? Do, do we not want America to be great? Do we not want it to, was it ever great, some will ask. Well, let's see what the Bible has to say. And so we'll be in the letter uh, to First Timothy, but before we get there, there is something you need to know about reading the Bible. Believe it or not, it didn't come printed in English, bound together with the Old Testament at the beginning and the New Testament at the end, Revelations, Genesis, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was a development. Did you know that? It was. You know, Moses wrote some of it. Paul wrote some of it. Jesus influenced a lot of the gospel writers. You got a bunch of these old prophets. You had priests and things like that. Things were collected and bound together. They came in scrolls, rolled up. They weren't even bound on the side. You know, the original letters were handwritten. Paul at one point sat down and wrote something. Other writers sat down and wrote something. But then somebody else decided, hey, that's good. I got this letter the other day. I think you ought to read it too. So, so they copied it, and they handed it off to other people. You know, gospels were being written, so, so they copied it. You know, Mark was one time thought of as being like an early uh, missionary track because of its brevity. It was easy to, to fit on a piece of paper, and they could make a bunch of copies and send it out with missionaries going into the field. You know, the early day track. But things didn't just come together. And the church met and grew 
And at one point they decided we need to sit down and see what letters, because other letters were circulating, other gospels were circulating around. There was a gospel with Thomas. There was uh, other extended gospels that, that uh, had parts of Jesus' life that we don't hear about in the scriptures, but not all of it made the cut. Uh, because not all of it was inspired. Not all of it was, was wholesome. Some of it had too much of the culture in it. And, and so why do I tell you all this? Well, I tell you about this because modern critical studies have begun to attack the Bible. Not necessarily in bad ways, but it looked at it instead of being this holy relic that you can't even question as to being a product of its development. And this letter today that we will look at, 1 Timothy, is one of these letters that people will say, Paul didn't write it. Maybe he did or didn't. I'm not even arguing that. But the reason I, I tell you all these things is because the Bible is a product of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Every letter in it, from the start to the finish. There wasn't just inspiration in that original writer, the author. There is inspiration in its collection and its transmission through history. Think about the darkest period of the Middle Ages when the Catholic Church was corrupt and beyond repair in some of them's eyes. The Bible survived it. Was it a human effort? No. It was the work of the Holy Spirit that would preserve this in unity. We still are digging up ground and finding little shreds of paper in different places. They'll be hundreds of years older than the oldest uh, manuscripts we have. And you know what we're finding? They agree with the letters that we have today. But now, we, we also read it in English. We don't read it in the original language, either Hebrew or Aramaic or Koine Greek. We read it in English. I'm not telling you you need to go get all these foreign languages because I still don't understand it. I took you know years of it in seminary. I still have to look up words. I, Thank goodness for computers where, you know, I had a professor that tells me, when, you, when you're pastoring in church and you come across the word, you don't remember what it meant in Greek, what do you do? You click the screen. He's right. We have technology at our disposal to where we can look at these things and we can look at them in, in the original languages so we can understand it. But we have to understand the context of these letters. And so whether Paul wrote it or whether somebody wrote in Paul's name, which was not plagiarism back then, it was basically a way to credit uh, the person you learned this message. However you want to view it that way, it doesn't matter because these words were inspired. But we have to understand the context of this letter. So in this context, Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy was his trusted associate, one that had worked with him, who had sweated with him, had prayed with him, and probably bled with him. This was one that he had trusted to go to Ephesus, a place of Gentile origin, to help start a church. But it's also a place that was plagued with problems. In the first chapter, you'll notice that there's these false teachers who were spreading these false uh, ideas in the early church before everything was settled. And, and Paul was sending Timothy in there so that he may start a church. Not just start a church, but to develop a leadership so that they may continue and thrive in the days to come. And so after he talks about and warns about all these false teachers, he goes on to say, first of all, in chapter 2, he says, first of all, then I urge you with that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. 
godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling you truth, I cannot lie, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So this was Paul's commission. He was also commissioning Timothy to take on this message, to take on this message of truth to the Gentiles. First of all, there hasn't a whole lot of list here. Basically says this is important. You can't do anything in the church without prayer. And he first looks at the leadership. Now, there's a big contrast here. You know, we look at our nation, and some still see it as a Christian nation. Some see it more as a secular nation with, with the Christian kind of moral guides, you know, th- these kind of things. Paul's day was very different than ours, especially in the Gentile world. So they had empress, right? They weren't just the kings of the land. At some point after Julius Caesar, they became divine. And there was this emperor cult that was sanctioned by the government. So a government-sanctioned religion to worship the emperor. This does a lot for your, your nation, your empire. It, it unifies them. If all of your nation is now kind of practicing this government religion of worshiping the emperor, you all have a certain loyalty. If you all have the same loyalty, there's more unification. And so there was this emperor cult. And so if you were praying for kind of guidance and and supplications and, and these kind of things, you could pray directly to your emperor, the one in charge. What do you think Donald Trump would do if we had an emperor cult today? Think about that. But that's what they had. They also had an ancient form of kind of feminism. Uh, it was kind of the, the really sa- kind of same if you've experienced feminism in our culture since the, the 60s and things like that. It was a movement to basically promote women over men, not equality. I mean, this was a power shift. It was, you had control, now it's our turn. I mean, a completely domineering type of feminism. And we can see that in some of the trails on the the far, far left side of feminism. But that's not how it all started. And and also in Ephesus, uh, one of the major cults was this, this fertility cult. The priestesses and stuff were women. Because that's how it worked. I mean, there was all these kind of things, and they called all the shots. And so the waters that Timothy swam in are different than ours. And so if we look at this letter, and we look at it as as hard and fast rules to live by today, how to start our churches and do our leadership and these kind of things, we, we might be missing. Because Paul is warning Timothy of these false teachers These ones who would spur on uh, myths and genealogies and rumors. These gossip mills. There's also false teachers. There there was um, those on the Jewish side of the spectrum. 
There was those on the pagan side of the spectrum. But basically, these pagan influences were grabbing onto the gospel and steering it away from Christ. They were twisting it to fit their context for them. Because there was a power struggle here. The gospel was spreading at a rapid rate. And people who were in this kind of business saw it and they wanted to jump on its bandwagon so that they could benefit from it. Think in the book of Acts when, when the magician came and he said to, to uh, Peter, how do I get this power that you have? Can I buy it? They saw something different. And so some of them were jumping on the bandwagon. Some of them were enemies of Paul and they would say that he was in prison for, for uh, God not liking him. These kind of things. But there was this context here and Timothy is going into an area of, of Gentile uh, origins with false teachers all around. But he doesn't just start. He warns them about these problems. But he says, before you do any of that, pray. Prayer is where freedom comes to fruition. He says, first of all, I urge you, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Not just for your church. Not just for the gathered body, but all people. And he says, especially your kings and those in high positions. Think about it. If your government is solid and supports you, you can live in peace. If the government is against Christianity and persecution is breaking out, which it would in their day, it goes underground. And though your faith may be strong, the message is not silenced, but it is not freely practiced. You know, there are people who will look at you, never come into church, but they hear your gospel. This is the hard part of this message. They see how you act. They see if you're um, at the hardware store picking up lumber, the language you use, if you're hiring people, if you pay them fairly. They see you live your life out in public. And you may be good about sharing tracks, talking about Jesus. Maybe you're not. But if you're not, guess what? You're still talking about Jesus and how you interact with other people. Paul knew this. He knew that the church wasn't different between inside and outside the building. How you acted inside reflected how you acted outside. And for Paul, proper order was required proper allegiance proper behavior because if we can't do it inside our church how are we going to do it outside so he says first of all this all begins with prayer prayer puts us in the right frame of mind it puts us in submission to our father in heaven it puts us in submission to his will it puts us in submission to one another so that we may live quiet and peaceful lives but he goes on in verse 8 he says that I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. 
Let women learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not prevent a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and then Adam uh, was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Raise your hand if you like that one. I had a few hands in the back. I don't think they were listening. They were just responding. This is a tough bit. We all can rally around the fact that we are to pray for our, our, our kings or presidents, if you will, and for those in charge so that we may have peaceful lives. And then it goes on to proper worship. We need to think first prayer needs to have a proper relationship in our life. We need to do it before we do anything. We need to pray before we charge into any new venture. But worship has a proper setting. We don't need chaos in the gathering. I was at a church, and I really consider a business meeting a part of a worship service. You know, some of you are probably cringing at that idea, but it really is because it is the stewardship of God's resources that you have been given. It is how you are to manage these things. And and I was at this church, and they said, well, we don't meet anymore in the sanctuary for our business meeting because we just fight too much. So, no, we had to, to move into the kitchen, so at least we're not desecrating the house of God. I'm thinking, wow. I had some business meetings. I wish I wasn't at. But Paul tunes into this. If we're angry and if we are bitter, we can't have proper worship. If we're fighting and everything is chaotic, that just doesn't go in these walls, but it spills out. People would look at the gathering and say, these people are crazy. There's no way I'm going to be a part of this group of Christians. I'll just stick to the way things were going, light some incense for the emperor. Maybe things will go better with my business. It's kind of like you know, supporting lobbyists so that they can help your political candidate remember you when it comes time to vote, that we need a little extra in this farm bill that's coming up, you know, those kind of things. But he says, My desire in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So should we now pray with our hands up every time we pray? I don't know about you, but my shoulders kind of hurt. I did something to them years ago, and anything past this, it just starts not feeling well. So Paul is writing to Timothy in a particular context. These holy hands that he's talking about, it could be literally understood this. You could pray with your hands up. Think about a big worship gathering. If you've ever been to one of these large churches that has uh, thousands of people in a gathering, You can look around and you see all different types of people. You will see some singing with their arms up. And then you'll see some as if their eyes are closed and they're looking down. Who's right? Someone has been moved in the worship service to reflect on their life and to pray in the quietness of their heart. Ah, to heal our lands. Maybe something moved. And they're praying for somebody that God has burdened their heart with. Some are so moved that they just can't help but lift their hands up to a holy God. This was proper behavior in this culture. Whether you were pagan, Jewish, or Christian, it was to lift up your hands as you prayed. 
It was as if we bowed our hands to say grace. This was what they did. Paul was saying, you have a culture that you live in. Don't be offensive to your culture, but embrace where you come from. But let God lead you. Remember to pray for your kings. But remember in these previous verses he said that there is one God. There is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. There is a mediator. It doesn't matter what other people believe. Whether they pray to their king. Their emperor as divine. We know that makes no difference. But you still pray for that man whether you like him or not. I was reminded over and over again between these two last presidents we've had, the current one and the one before, there are people who hated or loved them. There was hardly anyone in between. Whether you like this one or like the last one, if you weren't praying for your president, the situation you're in could be reflected on how you behaved. For God puts those in authority. But those in authority can usurp God's will if they so choose. So we must pray that they not necessarily be men of God, but they follow God for our nation, for our country, so that we may be an example to the world that we are a Christian nation on how we live with others. Because it is only Jesus is the only true mediator. The one who has paid that ransom. So remember Timothy's context. It was the lower ones of society who were so moved by the gospel. Because it offered freedom. Because they still stood in the bonds of slavery. And this message of ransom. Of paying your debt. Of removing the bonds of slavery. Resonated so clearly with them. Because they lived it. They were in bondage to another. But he tells the men, you should pray lifting up holy hands without anger and quarreling. For them, it was the fighting that was leading them astray. But then it goes on and it has one verse to the men and seven to the women. That doesn't seem fair. It's because he wasn't talking to us. He was talking to Timothy's congregation back in Ephesus who had a problem with feminism and these other type of things that were going on. In Timothy's day, women just weren't educated. That's plain and simple. Some were. The aristocrats were because they could afford to hire a tutor for all of their children. But in general, men and boys received education Women, if their parents could afford it, but they were always a secondary in that line. And so now we have a bunch of uneducated people causing a stir because of the push in society and their culture to basically take control. And so what does it mean, do not teach, do not exercise authority? Well, the Greek here is weird. Authority is not what we consider authority, but authority is a domineering authority, a domineering personality over that of the man. And so if we're looking in the context of their church, if you have one group that's educated, that is trained in the scriptures and these kind of things, and they are trying to teach, but yet you have another member of your church 
who doesn't have a lot of education, who is spurred on by the trends all around them, these that would prefer to protest and be loud and obnoxious, these kind of things, if they are disrupting worship, what do you think the answer to them would be? Well, for Timothy, Paul writes, don't let them have that opportunity. They should learn in quiet and submissiveness. But they should learn. Paul didn't require that women be kicked out of the church, that they be stuck in a back room. But he required that they should be taught and educated and that they should learn so that they will know their proper place in worship. That's not the context we have today. The context we have today is all children are educated. All children are led. And so you can look at uh, different sociological studies about being deceived. Who's easier to be deceived, a man or a woman? Women, who's easier to be deceived? Women, who are easy to be deceived? Y'all are scared to say it. Goodness, I must have heard that silent part. But, I mean, most women would say, men. Most men would say, that's probably us. (laughs) But what he's talking about here. And he uses this example of Adam was formed first and Eve, and then Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing. So we're going back to the story of, of the fall. And so the apple and these kind of things. And yes, the woman was deceived. And this is why it was important for the men to understand this in this congregation. As soon as the woman was deceived, she turned and gave it to Adam. What did Adam do? He ate it because she was the woman. They were both deceived. Satan used the woman because he knew it was the best way to get to Adam. He didn't know any better. And when we look at other verses like in Galatians 3, 28, Paul talks this way. He said, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. So in the eyes of the God, in God's eyes, we are all equal. Because we were all sinners. We were all enemies. But he loved us so much that he sent Jesus Christ to be our one and only Savior. And each and every one of us have been given the opportunity to become children of God and to follow Him in a way that we have never followed Him before because we have been ransomed, we have been redeemed, and we are able to have this relationship. And it was a sin in the world that blocked that relationship. He said women will be saved by childbearing, didn't he? And Eve's descendant, Mary, gave birth to a boy. As a virgin, man was not a part of this equation. It was Mary and God. And she gave birth to a man they named Jesus. And it is in his perfect obedience, it is in submission to God, that he saved us from the penalty of sin. And so through women, mankind was saved. Without women, Where would we be? 
And so as Timothy contemplates on how to live his life, he knows that there must be proper prayer. It comes first. There must be proper worship, proper guidance in the community. He knows that all should be educated under the gospel, under the the teachings of the law. For the law is good. It gives us instructions. It recognizes sin in our life. But we are not bound to it. We have been given freedom, but freedom comes with responsibility. For as we pray to make America great again, we pray that it is our president, our senators, our congressmen, our mayors, our governors, that they will be part of God's plan for this world. We know they won't always listen. We know we will not always agree with the politicians. But it is when they do their job, we can live peaceful and quiet lives. We don't have to worry about going to the grocery store and there'll be protests on every corner. We don't have to worry about police coming through these doors and dragging us out. But we'd be able to live these lives where we can contemplate. That we can learn. That we can be submissive to God's will for our life. For this is the message that he has for us. That if we are going to be true patriots, we must first put our allegiance to Christ. But it is through our allegiance to Christ that we learn to pray. That we learn to offer supplications and intercessions and thanksgiving when things go the way they should. But it also reflects who we are. We are the same inside these walls as we are outside these doors. If we have a habit of being bitter and angry and argumentative, that's who we will be. Whether you share the gospel with your words and tell about what Christ has done for you, or you remain silent, you still speak loudly on the God that you serve. If you cheat, if you steal, if you lead a life of moral questionability, but yet you claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that is your message. Your message is that he doesn't make any difference at all in my life. I can live just as you do. Have all the fun that you have. All the things that you do. But we are a church. We are a gathered body. We are brothers and sisters. We know better. We know that our life is important because we have been redeemed. We try to raise our children so that they may find that love of the Savior that we have. That we learn to be humble. And that we stand in a proper relationship with God. And that when we gather, we lift with holy, clean hands because we live a life that is worthy of the Father. We don't try to make trouble with one another, but we try to lift each other up. If someone needs to learn, let them learn in a manner that is fitting. Have you ever been in a class where somebody is talking? I mean, you go to these classes. My wife was telling me about one. She went for a teacher's conference. Many of you are teachers, and you've been to these conferences every summer. It's a continuing education thing on some topic. Well, not many of you really enjoy going. You just have to go because it reflects on your you know, job and these kind of things. 
Well, my wife was at one of these, and I've been at conferences similar to that. Well, there was a group of ladies who were there because they had to be, and they just carried on talking the whole time. Not just quietly talking amongst themselves, but regular conversational tones to where even the instructor was distracted. This is the kind of situation that Timothy found himself in. What was going on in his church was a distraction to those who came to worship. Paul says, don't let it be. Your freedom does not give you the option to disrupt others. Your freedom has a responsibility. I think of the slogan from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And it is true. We've been given the most powerful message to share. And it reflects how we relate to one another. We are come to be peaceful and to worship and to learn and to respect God and respect our leaders and our congregation so that others may see what we have and want to come in these doors and be a part of us because we have a message of salvation, a message of eternity, a hope that this world does not offer. So think about these things as you celebrate this week. Please join with me in prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for this country that we call home. Lord, as we celebrate our freedom, remind us of our responsibility. Remind us of our responsibility, not just in our state and our nation, but our responsibility in this world. Lord, guide us and direct us in the path that you may have for us. It is in your name we pray. Amen.